passion, drive, and patience. What brings home the winning trophy is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors is everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. From superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED lights, and more, whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to turn your car into the MVP and bring home that win. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Hello, everybody. John Pollock waiting back with you for day four coverage of the G1 Climax. Not only are we going to be covering Friday show from Oda Ward Gymnasium, but we are also going to be Covering uh, some of the news, uh, we'll talk about AEW's viewership for their Grand Slam event on Wednesday, and we're also going to discuss the Dark Side of the Ring episode covering Chris Canyon from Thursday night. Hello, Way. Hey, John. Huh? Um, not only do I want to welcome you, of course, to the show, but all the listeners listening right now, not just our Post Wrestling Cafe patrons, but because today's G1 was made available for free for everybody at New Japan World, we decided to make this post show free for everybody as well. So hello, if you're a free listener, we will be doing one of these post shows after every single G1 event, as we always do every single year at postwrestlingcafe.com, which is our Patreon. But uh, something different this year is that we're going to throw in a bit of a news update along with all of these G1 shows. I mean, um, you know, we're, we're this is kind of forcing us to get into the habit of posting multiple shows sometimes per day, but at least almost like, you know, what feels like a daily show. And uh, especially tonight, you know, having to cover Rampage and SmackDown on the same show, uh, this kind of allows us to spread the wealth a little bit more. And I'm going to announce uh, off the top that we are going to uh, talk about the uh, the Chris Canyon episode and our thoughts about the episode. And then at the end of the show, uh, we're going to air a interview that Mauro Ronaldo conducted with Canyon from May of 2008. Uh, it's a interview that I had. And we thought it would be very important to run this because the two of them discussed their own respective uh, mental health struggles. Uh, this uh, occurred two years before Canyon uh, tragically took his life in 2010. I think it's a very important interview to air. So that's going to come and we're going to put it at the end of today's show. I've had a chance to listen to it, and uh, it was a really captivating interview, especially in light of, you know, just watching this episode, especially being able to hear him and more Ronaldo kind of share their experiences with a bipolar disorder. So um, stick around. Okay, let's get into the G1 from Friday, our B Block event. And uh, the B Block shows, I've got to say, way it's like we have said, I don't know if you're necessarily going to get the same kind of blowaway matches, although we did get one with Tanahashi and Okada that may be on the high end of the spectrum of B-block matches. But I would say, like, match by match, I think we are going to find more of a consistency among the B-block matches. That's certainly in the, been the case with these first two episodes, or at least the first 
two episodes from each uh each block um absolutely i think the story is that you're going to get more consistency throughout the shows whereas with the a block shows uh at least for the, for the first two offerings the the undercard has been pretty dire with really stellar main events so um i i you know going into this i i think on paper the b block shows and the b block roster does not look attractive at all but um it really, I think, opened the door for a lot of these guys to to pleasantly surprise me, which I, I, I think we'll talk about on this show. So we're going to get right into things. As Wei mentioned, this was a free show on New Japan World, which I think is, they have done this um, many years uh, throughout the G1, where they throw in a few uh, free episodes in there for people to jump on at, at various points. I think it's very smart. And it also kind of informed the commentary, at least in the opening match, where they flat out had a an an explanation of the G1 and how it works very much catering it to someone that might be sampling this for the first time. Absolutely. You know, um, this year, especially, I think, you know, new Japan needs these sort of, um, uh, jumping on points, you know, reasons to give people the sample. I I mean, I imagine I can already sense, you know, I, I mean, we do, we did sense early on that interest for this G1 going in was relatively low. Uh, and so I think these, free offerings from time to time are very important for any sort of, you know, paywalled business. So we start off with Hiroshi Tanahashi and Hiroki Goto, both losing their first tournament matches. And Tanahashi, Kevin Kelly explains, has been doing a lot of upper body stretching in preparation for this match, dealing with his neck coming out of the Okada match. And the neck would be a big focus. Uh, Any upper body stretching for you today, Wei? Uh, not so much. No, I I think uh, maybe I stretched some hamstrings, but uh, no, nothing, nothing upper body as yet. They did this wild crisscross spot, and Tanahashi ducked Goto's lariat and took out his knee. But before Goto fell to the mat, he landed a Ushigoroshi. So you have Goto selling the knee, Tanahashi favoring the neck. The Shotenkai gets countered with a twist and shout, sling blade, aces high, but goes for the high fly flow, flow, and Goto is out of the way. And Goto smashes him in the neck, reverse GTR, and he goes again for the Shotenkai, but changes over to the GTR, and that gets countered with an inside cradle. Tanahashi catches Goto in 14 minutes and 11 seconds, and Goto, after the three count, reverses, going for the cover. This was very much like you would see in a fight where the guy gets submitted and doesn't realize the match is over and goes after the referee or something. I love this ending. I thought it was such a great end. And it seems to be like Goto, who has been always the bridesmaid. It's kind of like, okay, you are getting into the latter portion of your career. And now you are two losses deep and the frustration is mounting for him. But I just thought this was a really clever finish to do. And I thought they executed it. Terrific. It it was a surprising finish, uh, but one that I also enjoyed. You know, it was just a really kind of a sneak small package from out of nowhere. Uh, it was a relatively quick match by Tanahashi G1 standards, it feels. But this was also an opener and very appropriately timed as a result. But it was also very fast paced from the jump. There was really no feeling out process that you usually get in these main events. Um, they just entered right into their fast sequences. I wouldn't necessarily say there was anything all that out of the ordinary from it. You, you know, body part work, some signature moves. Really good fire from Tanahashi, but it, 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 I, I did also like the surprise out of nowhere finish. It, it was ultimately, I think, like an above average television match that you might get to see on North American broadcast. We should also mention that um, 
So this was their second straight night uh, in at, at Oda Ward Gymnasium. The A Block show drew 1,284 on Thursday. And you could just see way, like this building looked pretty bare at times. And the announced attendance, 816, which is dismal for the G1. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're going, they're playing by a very different standard right now. And, you know, seemingly just trying to accumulate as many people as as they can throughout the course of this entire very strenuous tournament so um it's it's something that i'm i've gotten a bit more used to four shows in but you know if you're just coming from like an aew grand slam to something like this it's uh it really does feel like something from a year ago rather than you know now and it's something you have to just kind of bear with unfortunately with this g1 uh what's your rating for the match uh for this one i went uh I went large with a milk, sugar, large with a milk and sugar. I didn't go XL territory on this one, but I, I really enjoyed this match. I went large, one cream for this one. And uh, I guess if, if you guys are not familiar, yes, we do have a coffee rating sp- system specific for the G1, uh, where large pretty much translates to like a three-star match and medium, a two-star, XL, four-star, and so on. Double and so XL, on. that's... that's- the, the creme de la creme, folks. That's that's the high or the, the milk high mark, or the milk, which I which I reserve for Takagi and and Ishi. I have not hit double double XL territory yet, but um, maybe maybe it was still early for me. You know, I, I was I was coming off of a uh, a caffeine, uh, you, you know. Uh, you, you uh, had drought. a four day drought. You had a, you were caffeineless for four days. You told exactly. us exactly. Yeah, easing my way into it. All right. Any cans of Coke being thrown at today's B block? No, I'm actually drinking a seltzer. Much to uh, <laughs> non-alcoholic, to I hope. Non-alcoholic, no, but peach flavored. Ooh. Chase Owens versus Tamatonga, another pair of Owen One uh, participants. They two sweeted before, and Tonga would work on the arm. Owens did this hip toss into a neck breaker, followed by a swinging version. And Kevin Kelly was bringing up. You know, his uh, honoring Bobby Eaton. They also mentioned how he came up with Tracy Smothers, uh, two individuals that passed away over the last year. And Owens catches uh, catches them with a snap German, follows with a backbreaker. We get a tiger driver and then turns that into an STF as they bring up Masahiro Chono, Mr. G1. The gun stun gets blocked and Owens hits a V-trigger, jewel heist for a two count, hits another knee strike and goes for the package pile driver. You think it's over and in midair, Tamatanga counters into the gun stun and he wins in 13 minutes. And the idea is that Chase Owens is still chasing his first G1 victory. You know, earlier I mentioned that, you know, the B block on the surface, I think, is not a very attractive roster at all. And matchups that are stemming from that roster certainly don't look great on paper. This was one of those. Um, but boy, did it completely over deliver. I thought this match was great. Like, it got to the point where um, I was flirting with XL territory towards the finish. And my feeling was like, if only they can stick that landing. And I think, boy, did they stick that landing here. Getting Great this finish. gun stun out of nowhere to counter the package pile driver. I thought it was great. These two greatly exceeded my expectations. I think, you know, much like maybe the first first opening round matches, um, we didn't really get to see it so much. But I definitely got the sense that both Chase Owens and Tomatonga were taking this tournament incredibly seriously. Both men here, I think, were elevating their games, uh, getting in great shape. 
introducing fresh moves, thinking about creative entries into those moves. I thought Chase was awesome here. You know, um, the action and pace in this one was really high, really sound. Zero bullet club bullshit. They were wrestling on an absolutely straight wrestling match. Even the Jado distraction simply came because Chase was wanting to send Jado a look, you know, a message as if to say like, oh, you want to corner that guy and not me? Okay. But then, you know, that allowed uh, Tamatanga to, to get the advantage. Like it was just straight up wrestling. So I thought they hit it for me. I'm going XL for this one. Oh and my I, goodness. And I truly believe that's not simply grading on a curve. This was a, an exciting, well-worked match with a very creative, well-executed, out-of-nowhere finish. Uh, I went I went uh, large, one milk, one sugar, and I threw in a sleeve for the finish. I, I, too, enjoyed this. I thought that they did a very good job, and I think they're two of the participants that uh, get a lot of flack from people, and I think that there is that kind of chip on their shoulders in this tournament that we're seeing just two matches in, especially... Uh, from Chase, and I guess, you know, we saw the jewel heist, but Chase Owens, also the coffee heist from Wei Ting here. That Man, forget forget seeking his first G1 win. I mean, this guy's after a double XL, I think. Obviously so. So, Tamataga uh, advances and gets uh, two points, and Chase remains winless, uh, which I guess will be a story that they uh, they continue to tell. We'll see how long they go with this one. Jeff Cobb and Yoshihashi. Uh I thought that this Jeff Cobb has been on a sensational run of late. I think everything is coming together for him. And this was a match where this guy worked like he was a foot taller and like that much. Like he just worked like the biggest monster in comparison to Yoshihashi. And I think he took various elements of Matanza that have now morphed Mm. with the Jeff Cobb foundational style that we're most accustomed to because they were very distinct together. And I think he is this match was a perfect um a perfect amalgamation of both. And I am not going to uh, forget to give credit to Yoshihashi because I think mm-hmm. he made that work as well, mm-hmm. playing ping pong ball for this guy. Um, we got uh, Chris Charlton busting out Aloha Cobb. Aloha Shout out Cobb. OSW. Mm-hmm. So they launch, uh, Cobb launched Yoshihashi in the air for this big back body drop and then went into a series of big belly to bellies, spin cycle. And then Yoshihashi pops off the shoulders, lands a dragon suplex, and we get Yoshihashi uh, with the flower power for you Mario Brothers fans. And he just goes nuts. <laughs> flower Mario. power or the, or, the, or the invincible star? Um, I always say it's firepower. It's you get the flower. So it's technically flower power, but it give it gave him the ability to throw fire. So I, always, oh, okay. I would always get those crossed up in like uh, uh, Mario 1. Flower yeah. power Yoshihashi here. Lariat, Canadian destroyer, running double knees. And they're explaining that Cobb is just too big for him to apply the butterfly lock. So he's going for karma, and twice it gets blocked. The tour gets stopped, and he fakes out karma and cradles Cobb, who kicks out, nails Yoshihashi with this shoulder block from hell, and then just holds on to the wrist, doesn't even bounce him off the ropes, just like rip cords him into the tour of the islands. 13 minutes and 22 seconds. Uh, I thought these two had a great match. I thought so too. I thought it was a match, you know, uh, you you mentioned Cobb. I thought he conveyed that monster presence really well here. And and, and it was interesting to like watch and kind of study his demeanor throughout because he was approaching this one as if it was like, you know, like big brother 
who's about to toy with a little brother, um, not really taking him seriously. But this is also a little brother who constantly refuses to give up and has a great deal of heart. So um, I, I thought Cobb like, expressed that really well throughout the match. He was kind of like somewhat lackadaisical and almost like, you know, not that excited about the match to start. But his urgency, of course, would increase as Yoshihashi built and built fire. I mean, to me, this is like Yoshihashi's perfect type of match perfect type of opponent he's great at playing a david david to anybody's goliath desperately firing up repeatedly fighting from underneath um built a really nice near fall with that cradle counter to the tour of the island that i definitely bid for so i really enjoyed this you know again um it's kind of what you would expect from either of these two men but i think each is probably one of the other's better combinations uh in this block so i went large one cream one sugar and I think it's worth pointing out, like, these first three matches I thought were very enjoyable. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to say any were, you know, um, standout, even, I was going to say match of the year territory. Honestly, mm-hmm. of the week we've had, it's not match of the week territory. But, perf- like, the art of the 13 to 14 minute G1 match is mm-hmm. something that's maybe a little underappreciated that, you know, you can certainly see that there is a bit of a pattern that some of the big matches were teasing the time limits probably to give you the incentive that down the road we're going to see many flirt with a time limit and you're going to be invested that we could get a finish at 29.30 and they could go the full 30. So that's kind of the the balance of doing those long matches as well. And yeah, some something I've been afraid of like prior to entering this G1 was like New Japan has had a real um, trend of booking a number of their matches on their cards to go at least 30, if not more, uh, or at least just slightly below in some of their prior shows. And I thought in this G1, you know, with these shows continuing to be somewhat bare, that they would still want to to do that for even some of these relatively like low interest undercard matches. And they haven't like these matches on the undercard are like going a very appropriate length. Even like a semi main is going, you know, like not that much more than 20, um even the main event tonight like didn't like they they're keeping most of the time well under the 30 minute time limit and it's made for like in the case of tonight i think a very good paced show well the longest match of the night was taichi and sonata both one and oh there's a lot of playing to the crowd and stalling in the early portion there's a big peck pop-off here the peck pop-off which was a continuation of, of a prior uh, match that, th- that these two had. And um, they were really, mi- <laughs> like I was going to say, mil- uh, they were really milking Jesus. it, which is a terrible choice of words here. But it was fun, I thought, you know, and, and actually quite impressive, I suppose. But um, I think you you definitely got the sense these two were going longer. Yes. Uh, these two, for the sake of our rankings, certainly provided the milk. Would they <laughs> would they add the sugar? That would be the question oh, in these 25 nice. minutes. Uh, the audience is clapping along. Taichi's selling his back, unable to lift Sonata at different points. And then Taichi pops up from a tiger driver, hits a dangerous suplex. And then there's another tiger suplex. And both are selling the effects of this where they can't get their bearings and both just stumble through the ropes to the floor. That and that particular sequence was really interesting to me. And Charlton, you know, quickly pointed out here using this as a... A, a space to kind of explain the differences between King's Road and Strong Style. But I mean, mm-hmm. those choice of maneuvers, I didn't think were coincidental at all. I mean, it was, you know, the Tiger Driver, the Tiger Suplex versus the Dangerous Backdrop, um, which to me totally felt like it was a Masawa Kawada tribute sequence. Yeah, I thought Chris had a, a great breakdown for, for those unfamiliar. 
the pants come off at the 19 minute mark and the skull end gets stopped. There's a choke slam that gets blocked. They're just having constant counters. O'Connor roll, Gato clutch. Tenchi finally gets the clutch, only gets a two count and Sonata gets up. TKO, but Moonsault lands on the knees of Taichi. Sonata then flips off the turnbuckle, and they nearly messed up the spot, but went right back into a striking battle. Sonata catches him with a drop kick. There's a kick out from the O'Connor roll. Again goes for a Moonsault, landing on his feet, and gets fired. Uh, or Taichi fires up with a forearm and catches him with Black Mephisto and pins him in 25 minutes and 14 seconds. I thought the match was fantastic. Really fantastic. You know, I think Tachi could be really hit and miss, but tonight he was absolutely a hit. This was like, a like to me, Taichi near his best. And I think much of the reason for that is due to him being having to keep up with the incredible pace of his opponent. Sonata was great here, you know, working a really solid, well-paced 25 minutes. Um, they started slower, but I didn't think it was boring at all. You know, some of the bells and whistles I think are necessary for these longer matches. And I kind of thought the peckoff was a lot of fun. Once the 10-minute mark hit, though, these two were going very fast with a ton of really amazing sequences, counter on top of counter on top of counter. Um, I love that like whole sequence with the Gato Clutch into the Euro cut Clutch, back into the Gato cl Clutch, and then back into the Euro Clutch. Um, I thought it was very creative, and as they were entering sort of like the plus 20-minute depths of this match, it got into that very sweaty, hard-fought, war-like feel, but they were still nailing all of these very intricate sequences, so... I, I was really impressed by this one. It was my match of the night. XL1 Cream. Wow. Um, I, I, I wasn't as high on, on the match as you were. I, I thought it was a perfectly satisfactory match. Uh, 25 was a little long for me, and I think it was more so the, the beginning portion that took me a while uh, to get into this. But once they got going, the chemistry was certainly there. And I appreciated like the story that they were telling, which was very different and accentuated by the commentary that I, I think helped this one a lot. So I, I still went large with uh, a milk and sugar. We'll throw in a sleeve there, but I, I'd put it a hair below. I, I I really enjoyed Cobb and Yoshihashi before this, but again, there was a pretty consistent line through mm -hmm. all of this. Like this was um, unlike the A block. Like the A block, it's just like total two sides of the coin that we're reviewing these a block shows as mm -hmm. yeah like it's very easy to choose what matches to skip and what matches to watch when you're talking a block with yeah with b block you can already tell like i mean there's probably not as much consensus between even you and i about what the match of the night was i i think you could honestly you could argue with me any of these four matches being your favorite match of the show and mm -hmm. i'm not going to deny it I, I to be honest i think my match of the show was tanahashi goto but i mean that just goes to show you Okada and Evil was the headliner. A lot of history between these two, and they're both 1-0 after their respective wins over the weekend. Evil is uh, working on the back of Okada, and Okada is wearing these multicolored trunks that Chris Charlton explains is about unifying the world during these times. Maybe he's just a big NXT 2.0 fan. Oh my goodness! I didn't even uh, I didn't even put that together. It was a very very similar big, color scheme. Big Braun Breaker fan. Obviously. I know. Yeah, maybe the uh, maybe the whale in the rain. No, I couldn't. I'm trying to make a whale reference, and I just can't. I tried. I tried. I just screwed that one up. Okada gets run into Abe, the timekeeper. I hate the spot at this point. It's a. It's the biggest groan of any New Japan show. Is the timekeeper spot? I don't think there's any heat attached to it. It's just a groan. Well, unfortunately, like I think at this point, it's like it's Evil's biggest spot. Well, like, it's sad. the biggest thing he has, because I, I don't think any of his other stuff works any better. So, we fast forward here. 
Okada hits the elbow off the top. He does the Rainmaker pose, but then the hair is pulled and Evil grabs Red Shoes, allowing Dick Togo to hit Okada with a chair from the floor. A few minutes later, Okada again comes back, drop kick, spinning tombstone, and he stops all of Evil's efforts, but the Rainmaker gets ducked and Red Shoes is launched into Okada. So Red Shoes is dead. Evil hits a low blow. Red Shoes is still out of it. Okada still comes back. Money clip. Togo runs in. They stop. There, there, there was another like Red Shoes ref bump here that just I don't I don't even know what was supposed to happen, but like they barely made contact and it was like it was awful. Like it wow. it looked terrible. Well, whether it was um blunt force trauma or a blowing spot, this guy doesn't call anything. This also happened in the ring, so I think we can throw that one out as well. The magic killer gets stopped. Toe goes in and takes a shotgun drop kick, and there's a spinning rainmaker that gets ducked. Evil hits darkness falls, and Red Shoes comes to and realizes, you know what? It must have been the gust of wind that sent me into Okada. It could not have been evil. So he just counts after being massacred, and the kickout occurs. Evil runs into Okada's version of everything is evil. Landslide tombstone, rainmaker, and wins in 2148. Um Nice closing sequence, but man, the bullshit was high in in this one. I I soured on this main event. I did too. I thought I was not impressed at all. You know what? It wasn't excruciating and overly long like many evil main events had been, but there was absolutely nothing about this that I felt made it worth watching. If there was one clear match, I would not recommend. It would actually be this main event. You have your very standard, you know, slow opening pace, bundled with a lot of your Bullet Club crutches here. Um, oh man, it's like, more More importantly, I found it disappointing for Okada in a main event, in the G1. You know, in a show where you have guys like Sonata, Taichi, and even like a Chase Owens giving like max effort, it just felt like Okada on cruise control, doing sort of bare minimum effort in a match. Nothing inventive uh, from him here. And as far as pace goes, it felt like they pretty much waited until the last five like 20 like after the 20 minute mark was when the pace finally started to open up but then the match just quickly ended after that so you you kind of left even unsatisfied for that reason so i'm going medium one cream one sugar one sleeve here which is probably like the lowest i've among the lowest i've ranked an okada match well everyone can enjoy my interpretive rating for this match i give it a large with cream and i hate cream Whoa, damn. Wait a second. So, so a large with cream, I mean... I, what does that I, mean? What does that mean? Am I, I going to even drink it? Yeah, exactly. I think that's even worse than, than a medium. Because, like, um, I think if somebody handed you a medium black coffee, would you drink that above... Oh, 100%. Dude, I like black coffee. I, I get black coffee. You would drink that above a large with cream inside. Yeah. So there you go. That's that, that's my gimmick throughout this is my interpretive ratings as well. I'm going to have fun with this. But uh, yeah, skip this main event. I, I didn't enjoy it all that much. Like, the work from Okada was fine. They're very much trying to push. <laughs> First of all, the three count occurs and Kevin Kelly just yells, hell yeah. And they explain their roles as objective journalists, but they admit they're both extremely happy. Evil lost. And it's not that they are pro Okada. They are anti evil. And they talk about how Okada has this spring in his step. They have not seen him like this in a long time and signaling the old Rainmaker is back and that this is Okada kind of uh, turning back the clock and uh, making people remember who this guy is. 
Well, in terms of uh, storyline, in terms of character, in terms of, I guess, win-loss record, I totally understand where they're coming from. But I, I suppose on a more of a, I don't know, critical performance level, I, um, I don't, I don't, I can't really go with that, that same opinion. So after today's show, the B block looks like this. Cobb, Okada, and Taichi are on top with four points, followed by Tanahashi, Sonata, Evil, and Tamatonga with two. And in the basement are Chase Owens, Yoshihashi, and Hiroki Goto with nothing. Okay, everybody. Now, this is the point in the show where we update you all on the G1 Climax 31 contest standings. Of course, you can find these results from Chris Angler every single week, look or every single episode, looking uh, at the show description here for a link, or you can go to postwrestling.com slash G1 for these results. And uh, as John mentioned, we have our current standings, and at the moment, we have a clear front runner on the leaderboard. Zach Smith leads the pack with 22 points out of a possible... What are we talking about now, John? Uh, possible... Uh, thirty points. Is that right? Um, I how mean, many we've people? Got, we've got four shows, five matches per show. Yeah, so thirty 40, matches. Yeah, forty possible forty points. Okay, oh, oh, yeah, f- five five matches. No, it's because it's screwed up because now we have like the non-tournament matches on the A block show. So we had one show of the A block with five, and yesterday's was four. Okay, so, but 15, the points still 19, count. Nineteen, nineteen matches we have had of the okay. G one. Whatever. You're including the forfeit. Okay, I'm done. I'm done. <laughs> Whatever. Okay, Zach Smith has 22 points, which is really high because no one else has 22 points. And then we have a tie for a second with 19 points each. D-Lama, Eric J, and Joe Sullivan. And then a, just a huge logjam for third place at 18 points. I'm not even going to attempt to read it. Uh, very interesting today, the Daily Perfect Club. A lot of people got perfect scores here, and I'm not even going to read this too because there are a lot of people here. But this was a show that evidently was uh, one where almost you know, relatively easy to predict. The only underdog that got a victory here was Tai Chi beating Sonata. Uh, only 38% of people predicted Tai Chi to win. But of course, the all-important post-wrestling C-block standings yes. hitting the post-wrestling contributors against each other in the G1 standings. And we have a new leader, John. Kate from Montreal leads the C block at 18 points, scoring Damn. a perfect card today. Five out of five. So wow, maybe the, a new queen of man, C block. look at that. Kate, Kate from, is on fire. Kate from Montreal doing tremendously well. She is followed by Brad the Archivist at 70, 17 points. Randobot coming in third place. Tied with Mike Murray at 14 points. And then Vivian Murray, 13 points. Tied with Eric Marcotte, 13 points. And Mark Buckledy, our A-block reviewer, uh, unfortunately, at the very bottom here at 12 points. So uh, you can see Mark's thoughts. Maybe he'll be shocked at a number of these results because he only predicted two victories out of the five today. Oh, boy. Well, it's still early in the tournament, so we will we will see... Uh, how everyone performs down the down the stretch. But the G1 will continue Sunday, and we are going to have a show out for you on Sunday with the A Block featuring uh, Kota Ibushi versus Zack Sabre Jr., that I think should be stellar, Tomohiro Ishii versus Kenta, Tangaloa versus Toriyano, The Great Okan versus Yujiro, and then a pair of non-tournament matches with Shingo Takagi against Yuji Nagata and Master Wato versus Kotsei Fujita. I think this is going to be a tale of two shows once again on Sunday. Very likely. Um, 
and sorry, what are what are the matches that you're looking forward to again? Sorry, we're talking about the 26th, right? Or, yes. or the yeah, Abushi right, okay. and Zach. I think yep. everyone's gonna expect high things from that. And honestly, the next one I'm most interested in is like Shingo and, and Nagata. Like it's very rare you're gonna get a singles match between those two, and you're hmm. also in Kobe World Hall with you know the. Uh, the history of Shingo with, with Dragon Gate in, in that building. So, mm-hmm. uh, the rest of the Ishii and Kenta is, um, should I be mean, good. I, think. I hope so, because if it's not, that's a, that's an indictment on Kenta if it's not. And then the rest, we'll see. Toriano has not been doing it for me in this tournament. And I can't say Great Okan and Yujiro inspires a lot of optimism either, but I'm predicting, I, one I go those, in with an open mind. Yeah. I'm predicting one of those two will be aiming towards like what the lowest rating, uh, of the block at least in this G1. I think Yano and Kenta have that spot to themselves, but it could be threatened. And then the next B-Block show is not until Wednesday. Looking forward to a little break. Uh, with Okada versus Yoshihashi, Tanahashi versus Tamatanga, Jeff Cobb against Goto, which probably continues the losing streak for Goto, and then Sonata versus Chase Owens, and Evil versus Taichi. Yeah, I mean, you know, at this point, I, I, I there are some storylines that are kind of uh, appearing in the G1 thus far. But, it, you know, I thought we would have a clear losing streak story with Kento, Kota Ibushi. And he, he lost to Yujiro in the opening round and then just ended up winning in the second match. So I don't know if we can assume anything at, at this point. Um, but one thing is clear, and, and it's that Zack Sabre Jr. is on a real hot streak. You know, he, of course, beat Tetsuya Naito, uh, injured him, unfortunately. But they are taking that as a storyline point for him. So he beat Tatsuya Naito, like, you know, knocked the guy out of the tournament completely. And then he beat the IWGP champion in Shingo Takagi last night. So he's on a very hot streak right now and will probably be one to watch. So let's move on over to uh, AEW Dynamite viewership from Wednesday night. They did 1,273,000 viewers, 627,000, which is a 0.48 in the 18 to 49 demo. Uh, from Brandon Thurston and Showbuzz Daily. These are the third highest numbers in the history of Dynamite behind the October 2019 premiere and the show from a few weeks ago in Cincinnati following All Out that had the television debuts of Danielson, Cole, and Ruby Soho. Um, it won the night on cable. They were number one, and they won several. They were number one in cable in males, 18 to 49, as well as adults, 25 to 54, and... I, I thought it was it was a very strong number, and I think the only resistance you would see is people that thought that this would uh, break the record. I didn't think they had a prayer of touching that. That first show that they did did a .68 in the demo, and that's going to take an unbelievable effort for them to approach that level. And the audience, I mean, that's I mean, you, you can look at it how, however you want, but um, did you have any any strong thoughts on the number from Wednesday way? Yeah, I mean, much the same as you, you know, um, I think, uh, yeah, much of the, it's it's just, I thought we were done with this, like, whole, um, I don't know, ratings war, uh, quick reaction type of thing that we would get on, on these Thursdays, but um, it continues with, like, people's, I think, very quick to judge hot takes on, oh, this number is not bigger than this number, that means, like, this company's going down, or, like, such and such. I, and, I think that so misses the big oh, picture, yeah. and it... It's like you brought this up the other day, and I think like it's it's a fallacy to just look week week to week of the dynamite and raw number. However, the overall trend is that AEW and Raw are neck and neck at mm-hmm. the moment. That's the yeah. story. And that's a yes. very important one. And the larger the next question I, I will say is that once football season is over, 
where is AEW in the grand scheme of things and how close is that going to be? It's, it's the bigger story that is important. And I think yeah. that's why you have the, the comparison points. Like it is here we are two years in and AEW is neck and neck with Raw. Like we're talking Raw did win this week in the 18 to 49 demo, but it was by the slightest of margins as, the, as was Dynamite when it beat Raw. Like we are talking razor thin advantages either side. Ultimately, the only story that matters is what the trends are that these shows will have accumulated by the time that their TV deals are up. Right. Um, and, and so these kind of week-to-week comparisons, they're fun, I suppose, you know, if you want to get into it. But um, hardly anything, I think, to take super seriously comparing one episode to another, especially when they're not in the same night, not against the same competition. But you're right. Like, the trends are that these shows are very close together. Um, but I also don't get too caught up about whether or not like this one happened to be the biggest dynamite rating of all time or not. It's in the range, you know. It's 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 the third highest one that they've had. No, um, no one should be scoffing at winning the night and doing your third biggest number in history. It's mm-hmm. it's a very relative argument if you're going the other way. Now, now I was curious about like you know the structure of the show and how that would hold up in the quarter hours, and of course we we think. Uh, uh, Brandon Thurston from WrestleNomics for uh, contributing some of these charts. And it looks like first quarter started with uh, 1.258 million viewers peaking w- uh, 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 in the second, second. portion yeah. of the Danielson Omega match with 1.373 uh, million viewers. And then tapering slightly with the CM Punk uh, promo and then dipping to 1.19 million for the uh brian pillman jr to mjf but holding on really strong all the way until the main event with Britt baker and ruby soho at 1.249 million so uh do you have any assessments about you know the structure of the show john no like i thought it was the right call to make starting off because i thought it was i think it was notable the fact that they grew after that first quarter which you would hope for you know putting out a a multi-segment match of that magnitude that it would grow uh throughout um, I, I think you look at the second hour overall viewership. I mean, it's as much of a straight line as you're going to get for viewership. Uh, 18 to 49 did drop like the lowest it hit was 564 for the, the final segment of the show. But like overall, when you're looking at entire viewership, I mean, I thought by starting off hot, it told me that the majority of this audience, they wanted to stick around for the whole show. This was not we were just here for Omega Danielson. Like there was a strong retention throughout the show. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's, it's, it's a interesting study. I mean, I'm looking at, you know, just some of the prior charts and um, we're, we're talking about dynamite. I mean, two weeks ago was their big one, correct? It was uh, the one with, uh, what am I talking about here? CM Punk. So the one with Moxley and Suzuki, the promo, like the one right after all out, featuring Kenny Omega, Danielson, um, that first segment from two weeks ago, Mm -hmm. that hit a 1.453 million with a 755 uh, prime demo rating. So nothing on this edition of Grand Slam hit that. Um, But it also makes you wonder, like, would would the show have done better if they put, like, Danielson and Omega towards the end? Or was it simply the freshness coming off of All Out that made that difference? I think coming off of All Out, you had um, an unprecedented level of buzz for AEW and seeing Danielson for the first time on TV, um, as well as the other arrivals. I just think, like, the the overall buzz, like, uh, following All Out contributed to that as much as anything. Like, there was just so much from what they did on the Sunday. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I tend to agree. 
And next week they're they're in Rochester, New York, and we only have the one match announcement so far. And then of course it's the two hour rampage tonight that has Moxley and Kingston against Minoru Suzuki and Lance Archer, Anna Jay against Penelope Ford, Lucha Brothers Santana and Ortiz against Private Party, Butcher and the Blade, Men of the Year against Jericho and Hager, Bucks and Adam Cole against Christian Jungle Boy and Luchasaurus, and CM Punk versus Powerhouse Hobbs. So this this is gonna be another Intriguing number to see how they do in a two-hour format on TNT. I've actually managed to avoid spoilers up until wow. this point, John. Yes. So I knew there was something for you, but uh, caught myself. No, no, no. I, 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 even if I saw spoilers I, at this point, it, it's whatever. But uh, John and I will be covering that show along with Friday Night Smackdown tonight for all Post Wrestling Cafe patrons. Again, we will not be taking calls on this particular episode, but we will be taking calls and making uh, Sunday's Extreme Rules post show live for all patrons. So stick with us for that. But uh, yeah, post shows every Friday night covering Smackdown and Rampage exclusively for patrons uh, at postwrestlingcafe.com. Yes, and in addition, tonight on the site, uh, we'll have a report from the Cubs fan at Lucha Blog on CMLL's 88th anniversary card. This is traditionally one of the big shows of the year, but I think CMLL interest is dramatically down uh, this year with with the company and its state. But we will have a report up on that site and see what comes out of that, as well as uh, John Pine will be covering the GCW event tonight. Get lost a lot from the Melrose Ballroom, which they have announced is sold out, uh, headlined by Minoru Suzuki and Homicide, and this is coming off of last night's emo fight that I know you were paying attention to. Uh, unfortunately, I didn't get to watch the show, but I'm certainly interested, and the buzz coming off of it is like, yeah, like Minoru Suzuki versus Homicide, I'm sure will be awesome, but Nick Gage DJing My Chemical Romance is like... <laughs> The type of amazing weirdness that I just really appreciate GCW for. I mean, these clips are showing up last night. First of all, I didn't even know like they were advertising Nick Gage as the DJ for this emo night. The idea of even an emo night being put on by this wrestling company is so hilarious. Smart. It like so, so taps into like their prime audience of like mid two thousands teenagers that this is so relevant to. I. This company and they're riding their hottest streak, like attendance wise. At, like since the Matt Cardona Nick Gage match, like they have been at a pretty solid level when it comes to like what they're drawing. Like they are doing some fantastic numbers, and they are just they are right on the pulse of the wrestling fan. Yeah, you know, I would I would say that they were, but at the same time, it's like how could you predict that? Like, and I don't know how how well this show is going to do, but like, I. I definitely think that this is a bit of a left field like idea, um, but they commit to it and they go for it. And it's, it sounded like it was incredibly fun. John Pine has a report up on the site right now. And some of the highlights from it include like um, Ali catch, who is going by Ali way, I suppose in a uh, tribute to my chemical romances, Gerard way um, mid match. She like broke into <laughs> like, she used her opponent's limb to sing, a rendition of Ohio is for lovers by Hawthorne Heights. Um, seemed like every, like Marco stunt did a performance and ended up playing like Stacy's mom, a dude ended up like somebody came out to like, uh, uh, break stuff by Limp Biscuit, which is not emo at all, but of the era, I suppose. Um, but of course the main event featured Jimmy Jacobs uh, and they advertise this in advance, but ROH fans will appreciate the fact that, um, he was advertised to perform, uh, the Ballad of Lacey, 
and was not able to do it due to interruption from Atticus Koger, but of course uh, defeated him, and then Lacey came up for a save uh, in a post-match attack, and that's where we got the big live performance of the Ballad of Lacey. You remember that song, John? I did. That was a very, very popular angle in Ring of Honor. So mm-hmm. that was again like tapping into what's that like what the audience is going to uh, recognize, and that that was a huge part of Jimmy Jacobs' uh, I think independent career was was that whole storyline. I was really hoping I, I did not watch the show, but man, between Lloyd and Jacobs on the show, I mean, it just opens the door for something Jimmy Eat World related, does it not? Yeah, and I think that would fit within the the definition. Does of that, does that consider itself? That would that would be my my emo group of choice if they are such. Uh, Maybe more like early, early 90s emo, like like Weezer type of emo. Um, But sure, somebody can inform us whether or not it fits. All right. So, yeah, they're back tonight. And uh, Minoru Suzuki Homicide is the big match. Taiji Shimori is also on the show taking on Tony Deppin. Uh, But let's move on to the Dark Side of the Ring episode that went down on Thursday night. The double life of Chris Canyon. And uh, this was one that, I mean, you knew it was going to be like a very, uh, another you know, tough series of subjects to cover. Uh, Chris Canyon, who was, he was a pretty like well-known uh, enhancement talent in the early portion of his career. He he came out of uh, Sunnyside, New York and began his wrestling career in April of 1992 and bounced around all over the place, but started popping up in Memphis, Smoky Mountain, ECW and then doing jobs on WWF and WCW television that I'm sure you can you can find uh, online. But of course, the the big break comes in WCW where he had been part of the the Men at Work uh, team that they did show some highlights of. Uh, but more measuring f- things for no apparent reason, as Chris I mean, Jericho said. <laughs> yeah, they, I mean, he did the spots where like he would get the measuring tape and measure before he'd do like a moonsault off the top and miss the mark or something like that. <laughs> That's hilarious. I mean, like just goofy, so goofy dumb, stuff but... that would be so popular today. Mm. Um, but then gets the Mortis character. And when they came up with Mortis, I mean, this was Eric Bischoff's huge idea of, you know, you would have these four easily licensable characters in Mortis, Wrath, the cat, Ernest Miller, and then Glacier, Ray Lloyd, um, as these four. And that was the whole impetus for Blood Runs Cold. And they ran these spots forever. It became a running joke. And, you know, as they stated here, like the NWO took off and uh, Blood Runs Cold, it ran cold. And they didn't really get much of anything out of this. It felt very out of place where WCW was going in this more realistic direction. And yet you had these cartoon characters that just felt like it really emphasized the the generational shift of pro wrestling in just really a year's time where WCW had been doing a lot more of that kind of over-the-topness with the Dungeon of Doom and such, and now we were moving into a bit of a more serious direction, especially for our main event scene. So that character really never took off much, and you know, Canyon noted in his book that he had been told in WCW that, you know... We just don't think that skulls are that marketable and had to have been oh amusing as he saw who would become the biggest merchandise seller of all time uh, right around that, that same period. But he gets unmasked as Chris Canyon and he, he feuds with uh, the flock, then got involved in the, in the tag team, which I thought was a very underrated uh, threesome that they had with 
Chris Canyon, Bam Bam Bigelow, and DDP as the Jersey Triad. And I remember a pair of pay-per-view matches that they did with Saturn and Benoit that I, I was a big fan of those matches uh, at the time. And then he went through all the other different characters. He was, he was also the one tasked with going, Eric Bischoff thought very highly of Canyon and sent him out as one of the main choreographers for Ready to Rumble when they did uh, the Jesse Ventura movie, which was filmed up here in Toronto. And that was when he was, he was stationed up here. And I remember him doing the law in studio during that time. And this was when the law was on at one in the morning and he was on it for like the whole two hours. And I thought he was just the most engaging guest and like a very down to earth person. Like you could hear when he was taking calls and very evident that this was such a big wrestling fan. And to me, it was like, what a, what an interesting guy that this is, that this does not come out on television. And in an interesting trivia note, he was supposed to be the guest on the law the night that Owen Hart died and they had to scrap their, their guests. It was going to be Canyon and edge on the show. And they obviously had to change everything. Mm. Uh, wow. Once that news occurred, because the Jesse Ventura movie was airing the same night as that over the edge pay-per-view, which was a, a brilliant idea by NBC to go against uh, a WWF pay-per-view at the time. But anyway, um, anyway, uh, we, we don't have to go through his entire career. I think most would be uh, familiar with, with Canyon, but he went through many more gimmick changes in WCW. It was positively Canyon at one point, Chris Champagne Canyon, and then goes over to the WWE during the, the invasion storyline. And, you know, it just, in his book, it's interesting to look at. Like the WWF period is limited to like 15 pages in this like near 300 page book. Like it's a very small portion. Uh, and then he's let go in 2004. And then afterwards, that's when he comes out. It's in 2006 and goes on Howard Stern. He did a lot of like publicity stunts to try and get attention on himself. Um, that didn't really work out all that well for him. And it's in 2004 that he's also diagnosed as bipolar and he cites 11 concussions that he's aware of that he had in pro wrestling. And I think it's those three elements way. Someone that struggled with his sexuality compounded with just a, an industry that plays with your head, regardless of, you know, someone that mm -hmm. is bipolar, that's only going to compound things. And then you throw in the concussions like that to me is like what impact each had on the other. Who is to say? But I think mm -hmm. the fact is those are three very important factors when looking at the, the untimely death of Chris Canyon in 2010. Yeah, yeah, certainly. You know, while uh, you, you mentioned, you know, many people being familiar with Chris Canyon, um, certainly, you know, if you if you started watching wrestling in the 90s, you'd be very familiar with his various iterations. Um I think, you know, most will probably remember him for, you know, um, uh, a period after his, his wrestling career where he came out and, and did sort of like the Howard Stern run and, and whatnot. But I even personally, like, was not really so privy to a lot of his mental struggles that were very much outlined and, and focused on in this episode uh, and brilliantly so uh, and tragically so mm -hmm. um, just, you know. I knew him as a wrestling character. I knew him as, you know, this great kind of a, you know, I mean, the innovator of, of offense. Um, this guy who would always do incredibly flashy, like video game types of moves. But I don't think for a second did I necessarily consider all the incredible inner struggle that he would have had throughout that entire time. Um, and so in this episode, I felt 
um first of all you get a real great glimpse as to like the amount of people that he influenced just simply as a wrestler you get to hear from of course brian cage who like has modeled much of his um gimmick or, or his catchphrases around chris canyon uh but also the young bucks you know who uh matt spoke at length about you know at one time chris canyon being uh one of his closer friends and having some you know very uh I, I, you know um Hard to deal with conversations with him over the phone, um, trying to when when Matt was nineteen, like that. That's mm-hmm. that's a very tough um, phone call to have with w- with somebody. That number one, you look at in kind of that that hero lens, but on top of that, it is, is that, that's a lot for a nineteen year old. And I think I think Matt conveyed that like to be yeah. so um, it's, to hear it's... someone so distraught and knowing that your words could have an impact on life or death. Yeah, it was Canyon threatening to kill himself over the phone with Matt Jackson at 19 years old. And so um, I had no idea maybe like their their relationship was was perhaps that that deep and, and that personal. Um, but I think, you know, the the main, I would say, um, fo- feature or at least uh, the main talking head of this episode was uh, James Mitchell, who managed Mortis uh, and remained a close personal friend of, of Canyon's uh, up until his death. But he was just so open about everything, you know, to do with, with Chris Canyon's life and really his own life um, that I found him incredibly captivating. And there were a lot of definitely like this the dark side of the ring is now really interesting because like not only are we assessing the subjects of the episodes themselves um, coming off of the Ric Flair episode. I mean, you know, we're really starting to assess how the the people interviewed are coming across and james mitchell certainly doesn't shy away from mentioning some very unsavory things maybe in his own relationship with chris canyon like at one point so canyon talks about like what wanting to create a porno tape like just so that he can prove to the other wrestlers that he's not gay so james mitchell talks about the story of them hiring a hooker um to film this sex tape with with a script and everything and Canyon never shows up. So, and please correct me if I'm wrong, John, but the insinuation was that James Mitchell took his place and filmed the tape. Is that right? So Canyon tells the book, the story in his book. And I mean, that's, that's the other thing. Like, like Jim Mitchell was extremely close with Canyon. And I mean, Jim Mitchell, you can see he is all over this episode because he is a tremendous storyteller and a showman. But a lot of these stories, like the wild ones, like Canyon writes about them in the book, like the story about the gay porn magazines flying out in front of his cousin. Like he writes about that in his book and he mentions this video. He does not state that it was a hooker. And it's it's told in the story that Mitchell starts playing this tape for Canyon and it's Jim Mitchell having sex with the woman and then putting the mask on. And um, uh, and it's more graphic. Okay, thank you. But you know that it's it's very twisted. But I mean, as you mentioned, the story was out there, and and Jim Mitchell, at least you know on national television, was not shy about like putting it out there. And that's just all to say that like you know he was very much an open book about uh, many of the rough edges um in in both of their lives, and uh I I you know goes into I think very tragic detail about some of these. I guess you can call them episodes that Chris Canyon would have where he would just almost kind of black out in these kind of violent rages. And um, not even realize it until after the fact. And it's something that um, you really kind of, 
your heart breaks for it because I don't think there would have been any sort of support structure for him at the time. Certainly not not in this industry. Um, and you just get the sense that this man was living with a lot of secrets that he had really nowhere to go to for help. No, and I mean that is that is the other um, part of this is is you know his treatment in WWE and the angle with the Undertaker is focused on, and it's a very um, it comes off very badly, and it did at the time that all of a sudden he is being asked to sing like Boy George, and his instructions were they want you to sing like the F word, and and that, that's how he described it in in the book as well, and he comes out singing as Boy George with, like, an exaggerated version of his lisp. And then Undertaker just beats the hell out of him and nails him with the chair from the other side. And he said he did suffer a concussion as a result of this. Oh, the and chair shot was, I mean, as brutal. rough as you would expect, you know, for, from a pre-concussion sort of, like, caring era. Yeah. And... Uh, and you, you know, get he, the Bucks. You get the Bucks' reaction to that because they were there live, and Canyon was a hero. Of I had theirs. no idea that the Bucks were there at the, at that show. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So he they kind of represented the fan, you know, um, in in many people, you know, being disappointed at seeing a returning wrestler basically get booked to shit. I thought I found it really interesting that you have uh, Raphael Morphy, who mm-hmm. um, I didn't really know. Uh, I've only seen he, him. He's like, the, he's like the live events coordinator at AEW and was mm-hmm. an executive th- doing a similar role in WWE for years and had worked at TNA. Um, and a close friend of Chris Canyon's. Yeah, and so, I, until they announced that this episode and he was one of the subjects, I did not know his history with Canyon. So he maintains that the WWE, like there was no malice uh, in the booking of that segment, or at least like they weren't, they did not book that Boy George segment to, I don't know, to punish Canyon for being gay. He maintains that. Um, do you have an opinion? So, and and again, like. The thing is with Canyon, and and I don't mean this in a negative way, but after he left WWE, he said he made a lot of claims and he said a lot of stuff. And some of it was like he was there was a goal of getting back with a major company and creating attention for himself. Like he went so far as to do interviews stating Bret Hart had privately told him Montreal was a work. I mean, he he put a lot of stuff out there. And one of the well, the biggest was he, he believing that. The WWE fired him before he was gay. And that leads to the Howard Stern segment where Flair is kind of sent there on behalf of the company to deny that. Um, I, you know, I, I cannot say a hundred percent, but I, I have a, ta- I have a hard time believing that that was the reason he was, he was fired. Um, just based on the fact that I, I don't think that that would have been the sole reason that, that he was fired. And in the observer obit, I mean, it flat out states that Canyon privately told his friends he knew that was not the case, but that was also something that was going to generate um, like that. That was going to be a story if he went out and spoke about that. So uh, that kind of gets into maybe one of the other hot hot button um, issues to come out of it. And that was and I think people expected this, you know, the the, the playing of the Howard Stern clips. Um, specifically of when John Cena and Ric Flair appeared on the show at separate times to basically kind of denounce the um, talents of Chris Canyon. Yeah. And in Ric Flair's case, I mean, directly to Chris Canyon. And you just, you know, it's it's a very heartbreaking scene because, um, you know, we know that Ric Flair was a hero of Chris Canyon. So uh, it's certainly like knowing... And that that to me, I thought thought both Flair and Cena 
came off very poorly there. It is one thing to say and defend that the company did not fire you because you were gay. But to diminish this guy's talents, I think that is like you can say, okay, this guy was not going to be Steve Austin, but he was a tremendous talent. And not included is a line from Chris Canyon in this to Ric Flair stating, Rick, if I was such a bad performer, then why did you have me work and train your son, David? Wow. And, and he yeah. just checkmated Ric Flair on that one. Um, you know, Ric Flair has come out with a statement since then and uh, since last night's episode and, you know, pretty much saying like the WWE, that was kind of part and parcel of adversarial talent or ex-talent that are out I, there. I have it here if you if you want me to read it. Sure. Why don't you read it? I don't have it in front of me. So Flair tweeted this last night, says, breaks my heart to hear later on that he took this so hard, calling into guests that were seen as quote, host, quote unquote, hostile to WWE was part of the job then. I should not have said that nobody had, quote unquote, ever been released. There's no way I could have known that for sure. I think he means uh, there's no way he shouldn't have said that he nobody had ever been released for being gay is what he meant. Uh, he says, I was holding the company line. Love is love is love is love. And everyone should be able to love whoever and however they choose without fear of reprisal. I wasn't a huge Canyon fan as a worker. But Chris Klutzer, Klutzer, how do I say his last name? Klutzeritz, I think, yeah. Klutzeritz was a hell of a good guy. Um, this was not the last tweet that he would uh, tweet in, in addition to this thread. He ended it with some sort of, like, joke that he since deleted about, like... It was like Caitlyn, Caitlyn Jenner reference. Jenner, like, it, and it was a very confusing line. Um, I think it was his attempt at, you know, trying to maybe say that, uh, you know, uh, who's, I, what, I what am I going to get in trouble for next? You know, I'm, 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 I'm sort of this, uh, politically incorrect target right now. Like what, what's going to happen to me? But clearly it was like a terrible attempt at humor in a time that probably did not warrant it at all. And definitely continues to do no favors for Ric Flair's online persona. I will say yeah. again, like if Ric Flair did not, um, like Canyon style like that, that's fine. You are allowed to have whatever opinion you have, but let's remember that Canyon forget his WCW career where he was tasked with going out to put together wrestling scenes and go recruit cruiserweights. Uh, I mean, he had a great eye for talent and in WWE, I mean, when he was rehabbing, he was sent down there to OVW. Like they saw like, this was someone that in a post wrestling career, I think would have been an outstanding producer for his clear openness to the style of the future and mm -hmm. this younger generation that I think is very much uh, there is evidence of in this episode of how your cages and young bucks and probably countless others uh, looked up to. I think he would have been a terrific producer. He was when Jay Leno came in for the road wild match, when Rodman was there to do the savage match, it was Canyon that worked with these people to get them ready for these matches. So this was not a guy that was just strictly bell to bell wrestler. He was very much involved in, uh, in training, in choreography. Um, so to diminish his talents in that way, I think that comes off very empty. Oh, it's super silly. Like anybody who I think has seen him wrestle knows that like the claims of him not being talented enough are, are ridiculous. And, um, you know, Flair here, and I'm sure Cena, if if asked, would probably claim the same that they were uh, towing the company line and just kind of like playing a soldier for Vince to, you know, denounce a guy who's been uh, tarnishing the company's reputation. Um, I understand. But also, that I think, sorry, sorry to interrupt, but I think that also, should, and not to say that, that Ric Flair or John Cena are, 
I, I don't know what their response is to that, but you know, you go out there in public and you're quote unquote towing the company line in a way like that. You have to own that. Mm-hmm. You, it is your voice. Yep. It, it doesn't matter if, if you're just playing ventriloquist, that's on you. Yeah. And I would say even so, even if you are a great soldier, which we know John Cena to be and probably Ric Flair as well, um, I think there is a limit to like what you should be willing to do, you know, to a, a fellow um, colleague in, in your industry. And as you mentioned, John, it's something you absolutely have to own because um, you are ultimately the one saying those words. You're responsible for those words. And I felt like if you can criticize anything, it's the fact that maybe these two had very poor judgment or just maybe even a lack of spine, you know, to like to to say something that perhaps they didn't truly believe. And to be fair, if if the company was releasing him and it was not over his sexuality, they absolutely have a right to defend themselves Mm -hmm. against that. And I think that's enough that you could have uh, defended and said, hey, the company, I mean, not just looking at like a token, but I mean, Pat Patterson was a major officer in this company that was openly gay and that did not uh, Mm -hmm. prohibit his employment by, by the company. So anyway, um, you know, his, his post wrestling years are are very tough on him. And you're going to hear this in this interview and it's difficult to hear. This is done in 2008 and he talks about the struggles of life after wrestling. Once you have made it to that level. And that was Canyon's hope that was by coming out in a public forum and promoting himself as the first openly gay wrestler that is active that it was going to be this big, this big thing for him. And by 2006, I mean, it was, it was applauded that he came out, but it was not enough that it was going to, you know, it it wasn't shocking either in 2006. And I just think he was looking at it as well from uh, the side of it being, you know, elevating him in back into the limelight of the industry, which did not come to fruition for him. No, that part is kind of, you know, um, it, it, it's upsetting. I don't really know how to take it because, like, on the one hand, you know, you you feel for the guy not really having sort of, like, a role in the industry at the, t- at the time. But on the other hand, I, I, I don't, like, it makes me feel kind of uncomfortable thinking that, like, he, he'd be, like, looking at something like that, uh, a very personal thing, as sort of, like, a gimmick to use. But, you know, he I think his intentions were also probably to be able to be a spokesperson you know be be absolutely be an and he was like he was doing speeches and i mean he was looking at an advocacy role on top of this because he said that was one of the most difficult things is that like he realized he was gay like at a very young age like i'm talking like nine or ten years old i think is the age he realizes this and said he had no kind of gay role models and that mm. was a role he wanted to play so this was by no means just looking at it from a selfish standpoint i mean he wanted to be a- an advocate for younger people in similar situations yeah yeah well i have to imagine you know whether or not he was the first person to come out or at least you know in modern times um i'm sure he still became that role model for many people as they would kind of detail you know in uh james mistral's final evening in person with with chris canyon um so yeah, they they do kind of you know go on to talk about, um, I suppose his final days, and uh, you know it, it was surprising to me that it was like him, it was like DDP who all felt like they had a sense of where this was heading, and it was almost a feeling of like you know not surprise, but just I mean in, in like Luke Cox's case, like 
almost elation that like you know their his very sick friend finally found some peace um but yeah really really sad yeah and i mean that's that's coming from those that would have seen him at his lowest points and i think looking at that um it was a very tragic end he took his life in april of 2010 and he was only 40 years old um so yeah it's 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 a tragic story involving someone that i, I do believe that he he would have been i think served uh, a role especially behind the scenes in where the the wrestling industry was going um it's just the industry was not there yet and i, I think he just yeah. did not see a place for himself in the industry at, at a certain point which like let's remember he is let go by wwe in 2004 and at that point god he's like mid 30s early 30s like that's a mm-hmm. very young age to be looking at what's next for me when he was a lifelong obsessed wrestling fan like wrestling was his life it, it's for those reasons that i i think we should all no matter what your favorite wrestling company is we should all be so eternally grateful that there is real alternative right now in the industry and not just for the fans but for for the wrestlers to perform in you know like so many of these guys put so much of their entire lives dedication towards one goal and when it doesn't pan out because there are only so many spots and this guy at the very top has a very specific taste for who he wants, uh, it's not the end of their stories. And unfortunately for Chris Canyon, like there, there really weren't those options for him then. He was so a man the, like way ahead of his time. He was, yeah. And I think if you watch, like, just go, go watch some of, like, whether it's the enhancement matches or his, his WCW matches, and you can just see, like, where this guy was trying to think – and look ahead. And he had, again, he had a great eye for, for talent when it came to being tasked with going out and bringing in uh, different cruiserweights. Like he was very close with, with Shane Helms, uh, who was not interviewed in this piece, but was very close uh, with, with Chris Canyon, as, as were many people. So we're going to end this now with uh, this interview. This was from Fight Network Radio in May of 2008. And I had, I had reached out to Canyon uh, to come on the show. And he was very excited to come on, not just to talk about his career, but um, he was also like big into MMA as well. And like you'll hear at the end here, he very much wants to get his MMA picks in uh, for the upcoming series of cards. But I talk about how this guy's life was wrestling. Like he was very in tune with the pro wrestling media landscape. And I mean, when I emailed him and he responded like he was very much aware of who I was and asking like, is this the world famous John Pollock? And uh, I was like, that's not a response I <laughs> typically would get from a uh, guest subjects, but I, uh, you know, he was somebody I did not have, you know, beyond that, any, any interactions with him, but I thought this would be a very interview, uh, important interview to run as well with, with Moro, who has been very open about his own uh, struggles and the two of them kind of sharing uh, those experiences. So this is, Maura Ronaldo in conversation with Chris Canyon. It is Fight Network Radio Hardcore Sports Radio Series 186. My guest at this time, a former professional wrestler best known for his work in WCW and WWE. It's my pleasure to welcome Chris Canyon to Fight Network Radio. How are you, Chris? Doing great, man. How are you guys doing? Doing very well. Now, uh, Chris, uh, 15 years to the day after you entered the business of professional wrestling, your first fight uh, fighting as Chris Morgan. You retired earlier this year, uh, largely out of the industry now, but you become a frequent guest in Howard Stern. Uh, you're proving that, I guess, there is life after wrestling. What have you been doing since you uh, left the ring wars? Uh, dude, um, you know, a lot of it was the whole coming out process. That took, uh, 
you know, uh, I wasn't even out to family uh, after Vince fired me. And, uh, you know, it took me a good year of therapy and stuff to just get to, you know, come to terms with that and being able to come out to family and friends. And, and that took a year. And then once I was comfortable with family and friends, you know, then I, then I went to the, uh, you know, went public with it. And uh, originally did it up in Sudbury, Ontario, but then I did it on that pay-per-view that, you know, that clip you guys just played. Um, you know, it, it, after that, it, even after that, there was still, you know, life after wrestling is hard for guys that have made it. Uh, I was recently talking to Mean Mike. Uh, you know, he's a guy who did some independent stuff around here in Florida and been around the business forever and uh, ran into him. He's bouncing at a bar. and he, He's the one that kind of opened my eyes to the fact that, you know, guys on the indie scene, they're all, they all seem to do all right, you know, as far as their regular life and, and mentally. Once you make it, once you're there for any kind of extended period, to try to live life after that, it, it you know, it puts us in a, a tough mental spot for a lot of us, and uh, that's why you see so much drug abuse and, and uh, you know, suicide attempts, and, and uh, we have trouble adjusting afterwards. Yeah, and Chris, obviously, uh, I mean, you're still in that in that phase, as as you've told us, and having to deal not only with uh, you know hanging up your wrestling boots, but all of uh, the the goings on in your personal life in 2006. You you did come out of the closet. Uh, you stated that you believed your sexual orientation was in part the reason that you were let go by WWE in uh, 2004. Do you, do you still feel this way? Yeah, I'll tell you what. When you're closeted and you're you know around a lot of guys, a lot of times guys you know show their true colors and a lot of the guys that i was with in wcw um ended up with uh power spots and management spots in wwe by the time i got there and i'd already known they were homophobic just because i you know by the fact that i was closeted and they didn't know i was gay they talked openly about how much they disliked gays and you know and then once i got up there you know the rumors rumors started in wcw by the time i got up there uh you know rumors were pretty strong mm -hmm. and uh you know, I, I know for a fact that a lot of the guys that were in power disliked gays and that they either heard the rumors and believed it or, you know, figured there's a chance, so fuck them. Well, did, and, you, uh, did you feel at the time that you had anyone to turn to, though, in terms of uh, even though you were closeted and stuff? I mean, obviously, you must have been feeling the pressure on an emotional basis, knowing what you knew about yourself. Because right now, obviously, the, the wrestling world is dealing with the fact that uh, racism seems to be rampant. We've seen Michael Hayes, a, a power guy in WWE, recently get suspended for 60 days for dropping the N-bomb on, on Mark Henry. And I'm just wondering, when you were involved in WCW and WWE, you see that there are a lot of power people that were homophobic. Is that something that is very prevalent in the industry? Oh, dude, if, if people were suspended every time they dropped the F.A. bomb, uh, you know, there would be no management. It's, it's just a lot more accepted to, you know, call people, you know, use the words like fag and queer and, you know, faggot homo than it is to use the N-word. Um, so it's just used a lot, especially in that high t testosterone uh, environment, you know. Uh, a lot in WCW back in the you know 90s and you know as well as when I got to WWE in 2001. There's no doubt about it. It's, it's an issue. Now did this and and, and, and to, 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 to think that Orlando Jordan got fired uh, and it had nothing to do with his sexuality is absolutely absurd. There's no doubt in my mind he was directly fired because he was gay. No doubt about it. Well, now, now we've heard, yeah, we've heard he's bisexual, but uh, and uh, you feel that 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 is the the reason that he was let go is because of his sexual orientation. Yeah, no doubt about it. Uh, you know, they tie it to you know he had a friend in the back. Uh, you know, it was a younger guy. Um, 
if it was, you know, if, if, if the guys got fired every time they had a younger girl in the back, there wouldn't be much wrestling. I'll tell you that much. But <laughs> yeah, the ring because, yeah, because his was a guy, and they automatically assumed, because he was open about his bisexuality amongst the boys, that he was fooling around with this dude, they immediately fired him. Immediately, on the spot. Uh, there's no doubt about it. There's, there's no way anyone, and, you know, you can sit there and say, ah, once, you know, the gays come out and all they do is bitch and moan. You know, there's a chance I wasn't fired because I was gay. You know, maybe Vince never knew. I definitely felt I was treated by some of his management poorly because of that, and I know for a fact his management lied about me and things I said and did. Um, did that play into me being fired? There's definitely a chance. But there's no doubt in my mind that it would be hard for anyone to argue about the Orlando Jordan situation if you know all the facts. It's well, almost impossible to argue. Did you receive any positive feedback when you came out of the closet from your peers in the business? Or maybe conversely, did you feel the wrath of some of the guys you thought you were friends with once it was made public that you, know, you were, in fact, gay? You know what I expected? I expected 50-50, you know, especially with, you know, I was online people either tend to be a little more honest uh, or they tend to be a little more brutal even if it even if it goes against how they really feel you know they have the anonymity of being able to go on my myspace and call me a faggot and queer and there's gonna be no uh, repercussions so i expected about 50 percent uh, i had 90 to 95 maybe even 98 percent positive uh and i felt the same with all the guys i told in the business and just overall uh but it wasn't 100 percent uh there was a promotion here in florida that I'm working for regularly, and as soon as that happened, uh, you know, it definitely they put me in a lower spot, and then before I knew it, they weren't booking me at all. And, you know, I heard the rumors that it was definitely because of that, but overall, I was able to get bookings easier than I was before I came out. And, uh, you know, the fact that TNA wouldn't bring me back and Vince wouldn't bring me back, you know, who knows what, you know. Who knows what that was all about? What about uh, your close friends? I know that you were, you know, in in, in storyline and otherwise, you were close to Paige Falkenberg, Diamond Dallas Page, and, and James Mitchell helped you uh, early on in your career. Uh, what is your relationship like with those two these days? Uh, James is gay now. Uh, he's my lover. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure he's uh, um, <laughs> You should have seen. You should have seen the look on my producer's eyes. He's like, scoop. Yes. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm still. You know what? I haven't lost a single friend through the, and not only in my professional life but my personal life uh, through the coming out process. Not a single person reacted really badly. And, you know, a few were thrown for a little bit, and, you know, but overall, they all came around. Uh, anyone that did have any problem came around, but 95% right off the bat was positive, you know, and a lot of them kind of knew anyway and had a feeling, but, uh, you know, I'm still, you know, close with Jim, uh, close with DDP. I still talk to him. You know, I'm a bit of a recluse when you, when you, when you bipolar, you know, you end up spending a lot of time on your own. uh, That's another uh, subject, actually, Chris, that I wanted to touch base with because you don't know this, but uh, I was diagnosed uh, with bipolar affective disorder when I was 19, just getting my uh, career started, and uh, it has been uh, both uh, a gift and a curse, believe it or not. In the last five years, uh, thanks to medication, I've been able to uh, uh, maintain and, and actually flourish in my career. I mean, I've had most success I've ever had in the last five years, and I'm just wondering though when were you first diagnosed uh, with manic depression also known as bipolar affective disorder and 
And what kind of an effect has that had on your career? Because in doing a lot of uh, research and having been in hospital and such, uh, there are a lot of people in our field, like the creative field, that, that do suffer from it. There's, uh, you know, the, 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 the mania, if you will, that allows us to stay up all night and then come up with all these great ideas and do all this work. And then the, the flip side, you know, the, the, the depression where, yeah, one does feel suicidal and one does feel uh, like a recluse. And, and it can be very devastating on personal relationships, family and otherwise. And I'm just wondering if you don't mind uh, sharing with us a little bit of what it's been like not only to be bipolar, but a bipolar homosexual. That's got to be, uh, you know, twice the burden. Well, yeah, and I, I think definitely one led to the other. You know, it's definitely a uh, cyclical thing. It's chicken and the egg. Uh, you know, I, I, there's no way your mood and, you know, if you're up or down is not played into your sexuality and, you know, if you're sexual and your sexual tendencies and stuff like that. So they definitely related. Uh, as far as time frame, September 14th of 03 is when I tried to kill myself with an actual suicide attempt. Um, I wasn't diagnosed until uh, June of the following year, of 2004. Uh, but, uh, you know, I'm writing a book right now. I uh, signed a book deal after my first Stern appearance and uh, still working on that book. And it, it makes you reexamine your life. And as I'm going through these years, I'm, I'm getting interviewed, you know, at one point it was weekly and for two to three, four hours a, a week. And it makes you re revisit your life and your childhood, and you realize, I probably had this my entire mm. life. And mm. there's no doubt about it, the way I came up with all those moves, the, re the reason I was coined the innovative offense by Mike Tanay was that I was creative because of the bipolar. Exactly. Media. Uh, I could not work out or tan or do anything in my daily life without the mind constantly racing about wrestling and hmm. new moves and picturing moves and my matches in my head. And the mind just... For people that aren't bipolar, haven't experienced anything close to mania, or you know. No, and that's and that's really it. Uh, and I don't know what it was like for you, uh, Chris, with your family, but you know, uh, my parents being from Italy, old school, and and just friends, they you know they see you having a down day. Oh, don't worry, everybody's depressed, and you know, just go outside, get some fresh air, not realizing that it is the chemical imbalance that that is not going away anytime soon. And then the flip side, they see you one day where you're the life of the. You know, I've been always in TV and radio since I was 16, and I think that says enough right there. Being discovered at 16 had to do with my uh, bipolar because uh, it was it was to the point where I'd literally freak people out at the at the just what I was doing like everything was all hyper and I I knew so much and did so much and then yet when you crash and you burn and and you're there you know looking at the ceiling wondering okay is this the day you're going to try something then it's 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 an incredible roller coaster ride and and even though Hollywood and and society the stigma is not as much as it once uh, was there's a great book that I think you should even uh, check out if you haven't already done so Chris called The Unquiet Mind by Kay Redfield Jameson she's a psychiatrist who actually was diagnosed with bipolar it's an incredible read and, and it really uh, allowed me to become even more comfortable with my own diagnosis and be able to say what I'm doing right now, speak about it publicly, uh, because in my industry as well, being a TV and radio announcer, you know, everyone thinks, oh, that guy's got the perfect life. He's always on. He's always in that. And when they realize that, you know, like everyone else, we all have our issues, uh, I feel that it's – I no longer think it's a burden. I, I carry it with a badge of honor. I know it's weird to say, but uh, being bipolar is – if I can educate people and, and help people come to grips with whatever they might be, going through then uh, you know god bless you with uh, this book idea and i hope uh, i hope it's uh, nothing but a success for you well i'll tell you what i'm the same way uh, i was shocked when i came out and, and you know first told people about you know my suicide attempt and my bipolar uh, diagnosis how much attention that got that got uh, as much attention if not more than when i came out of the closet mm -hmm. um, people were shocked but i was so willing to talk about it and to me it wasn't 
you know, it's a disease. Exactly. It's a, it's like, you know, a diabetic needs insulin. Uh, we need our meds. It's, it's always the same. Because we're not in a wheelchair, you're not, you don't have a bandage wrapped around your head. People are like, well, you look fine. What, what's wrong with you? Everything seems to be okay. I mean, you're a highly functional human being. So what? You know? Yeah. Uh, you know, most diseases, heart disease, liver disease, it's all one of the organs malfunctioning. The, the brain is the most complex of all the organs. It's the one that the scientists and the, the medical profession understands the least. And to think that's not going to have malfunctions and problems and chemical imbalances, you know, and to try to explain to people what being up and being down when you're bipolar is like, in regular terms, it's fruitless. To You know, the only way to really understand it, I think, is if you had a really good, you know, trip on, on, on uh, mushrooms or if you're taking cocaine, it's that kind of level of a high. And then the exact same as when you crash on coke or, you know, heroin or whatever kind of drugs that type of crash where you just can't even get out of bed yeah it's an interesting that, way of describing it because that's exactly what it is like and i'm just wondering now health-wise how how are you coping with your bipolar I, i've done really well uh i was an inpatient last uh christmas uh new year's and my birthday which would have been uh not the 2007 2008 uh holiday season but 2006 2007 i was an inpatient uh for 14 days in a uh, institute, and then I did 20 days in a halfway house. Um, and ever since then, it's been now almost a year and a half, and uh, no inpatient stays, um, no intensive outpatient. Uh, you know, I still see my therapist every now and again, and uh, they put me on, you know, it's again, it's, it's hit or miss with the medications. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of them that they try to use. I've been on most of them. Uh, they put me on lithium at that point. Yep. Uh, you know, it's one of the older medications, but it's the one that worked the best for me, and uh, it really stabilized me, and it got me refocused. And uh, I am now in Florida, packing up all my stuff out of my condo in Clearwater. Um, I actually have a place right across the, the lake, uh, right across the inlet here from Hulkster. Hmm. Uh, selling that place, and I'm moving out to L.A., uh, hooked up with the stunt guy from Ready to Rumble, and I'm going to go out there and do some stunt work. That's awesome. And, uh, Chris, uh, that's funny you, uh, you bring that up because you were heavily involved not only in Ready to Rumble but uh, the J uh, Jesse Ventura TV movie as well. Uh, working with uh, the actors and celebrities, I mean, you helped train David Arquette, uh, Jay Leno. Were they all in it just for the bucks and uh, the yucks, or did you did they did they show respect for, for your craft? Arquette loved it. Arquette was, uh, you know, just a huge fan of the business. Uh, just, he was thrilled to be part of it. Leno, I think so, just as uh, you know, a promotion machine for his for his show. Uh, he's, he's a workaholic. Uh, you know, he was it was incredible how hard he worked. He he was up and from what I understand, over at his studio, eight o'clock in the morning every day, writing and, and filming bits and stuff. Filmed at four thirty, came met us around six, trained with us literally until we said, all right, that's enough for today. He'd go, you know, I heard back to the studio till midnight, and then uh, do it all over the next day. And uh, he worked his ass off. I mean. He, he, he did, you know, he did as much as we expected, if not maybe a little more. Uh, we knew we weren't going to get, you know, a physical match out of him, but, uh, you know, he gave it his all, and, uh, you know, I, I think it was just a new experience for him. I think he had respect for, you know, some of what we did, and, you know, a lot of these guys grew up with people like Bruno San Martino, and they have good memories of, you know, the uh, the olden days, and they just want to see if they can get involved. And I think that's why Hulk's new thing might, you know, it might be interesting. It would be interesting to see who he signs and, uh 
you know, what exactly they do. Yeah, you're talking about the Hulk Hogan celebrity wrestling vehicle that's going to be airing on CMT. When you look back at your career 15 years long, and, of course, uh, you know, you did make it. Uh, you know, regardless of uh, what other uh, issues may have been at hand, politically speaking, as you know, the wrestling business is all about politics. But when it comes to talent, you were one of the best, whether it was Mortis, whether it was a member of the triad. When you look back on your career, what was the, the most memorable times, you know, whether angle, storyline, or whatever, and then when did you know that, uh, well, maybe this isn't what I want to do with the rest of my life? So let's start with the, the highs, if you will. Um, you know what? You And that's the great thing about having to write a book. It's just so therapeutic. You forget so much, and it forces you to remember things. I definitely, the, the climb the climb up the ladder was definitely better than once I got there. And You know, that was, again, a thing, uh, you know, Aerosmith says it best in the, in, the, in the song Amazing, and they say, life's a journey, not a destination. I, I think in the beginning, you know, the goal was so far out there, you know, be a pro wrestler on TV. Just to get on my first show and then to get on my first TV and get on Smoky Mountain and see Jim Cornette run the show in the back and be part of that and, you know, watch Paulie do his thing in ECW in the very beginning. I, I, I came in at a very good time. I was lucky enough to, you know, the territories were still kind of, holding on, Memphis was still holding on and, and Smoky Mountain and ECW were you know, hot at the time, it was almost like the place to be and I, I was lucky enough to be in those places at the right time and to watch things happen and you know, even getting to from Memphis to WCW and getting you know, I got there literally right as I got there, I started in May with them and they went live with the uh, Nitro and Nitro stuff. in that September. Hey, so, Chris. I was there at the very beginning. Yeah, you know? Chris, I don't mean to cut you off, but uh, the time is our enemy right now. But I do want to invite you to, to come on back because uh, we just really scratched the surface of your career. But I do appreciate you sharing uh, so much personal information regarding uh, not only your sexual orientation but the bipolar affective disorder because I think the more we can educate the people, especially in our roles, being uh, profile people, I think the better it will be for, for all of us. And I uh, wish you all the luck with your book. And uh, definitely uh, visit us again here on Fight Network Radio. Uh, no problem. And uh, here are my quick predictions on the MMA. I yes. Faber, Silver, Machida, Shirk, and Lesnar. Wow, he's an MMA right fan. Right down the line, uh, Faber's no doubt. Nicely Faber. done. I appreciate yep. that. Thanks a lot, Chris. We will talk to you soon, my friend. No problem. All right. And that's going to bring an end to the show. Uh, both Way and I would like to extend a thank you to Fight Network for allowing us to run that interview with Chris Canyon. It was a very important interview to run, and I'm glad that all of you had a chance to hear it. We are going to be back later tonight. We are live at 12.15 a.m. Eastern with Rewind to SmackDown. That will be live and available for download after for all members of the Post Wrestling Cafe.